Hello to all of our Where You Are listeners. It's your co-hosts, Bryn Asquith. And I'm Michelle Horn. With our podcast team off researching and preparing upcoming and exciting episodes, we are sharing a rerun with you today. This is a first for us, so it was fun to go back and listen to previous episodes and land on which one we wanted to share. This is an episode from season one and one of our favorites. Not only were we big fans of the guests who joined us, we love how this episode just kept things real and offered some really practical ways parents and caregivers can support kids regardless of what challenges they might be facing. And how families can find a new balance when their child is struggling and find the courage to maybe try something new. It was also great to hear the friendly voice of one of our previous co-hosts, Shar Black, who's actually going to be joining us on upcoming episodes this season. So while our next episode is in the works, enjoy this gem from season one of Where You Are. Welcome to Where You Are, a podcast that strives to help families promote their mental health and wellness. We navigate important topics to meet you where you are in your journey. This podcast is brought to you by BC Children's Kelty Mental Health Resource Centre, a provincial hub for information and resources on mental health and substance use for children, youth, and families. I'm Shar Black, and my wonderful co-host Michelle Horn will be speaking with Mary McCracken, a mother of three, and Dr. Ashley Miller. Mary's a mom of three, and her family over the years have experienced a lot of mental health challenges firsthand. As a parent, she shares her knowledge in what has helped her own family. Professionally, Mary spent the last nine years before recently retiring with FamilySmart. As part of her role, she provided peer support, assisted with mental health system navigation, and connected BC families with mental health and substance use resources. Dr. Ashley Miller is a child psychiatrist and family therapist at BC Children's Hospital. As part of her work, Dr. Miller runs support groups with, for teens with depression and caregiver groups for families. She's also a passionate advocate for family and caregiver involvement in the mental health treatment of children and youth. Here's that conversation. So Mary and Dr. Miller, thanks so much for being on our podcast today. Before we get going with the questions, we've been starting off each of our podcasts with a short mindfulness moment just to calm our minds and get ourselves settled in. Would you both be okay with that? Sounds good. Great. Okay, so I have one here. Uh, we just have this mindfulness card pack that we use in the office to take breaks during the day or to start off our meetings. So I've just chosen one to start us off, and it's called Gratitude Mantra. For this one, what we're going to be doing is uh, we're going to bring something to mind that you're grateful for. Silently repeat this while holding the image in your mind. So how was that? Good. It's relaxing. Yeah, and that's something to our listeners that you can try at home if you just wanted to take a moment out of your day to kind of reset and, and calm your minds. Okay, so today we're talking about parenting and how to support your child or youth and um, promote their mental health. So Dr. Miller, we're going to start with a question for you. To start things off, can you just speak generally about the role that parenting plays in a child or youth's mental health? Sure. So I think it's really important to start any discussion about parenting and mental health by saying that parents don't cause mental health problems in children. As soon as you see the title, even of this podcast, some parents may feel like, "Uh oh, what is this going to be about? And what am I doing wrong? And that's really a common thought. And it's not at all what we're going to be saying today. Parents play the biggest role in supporting their children 
recovering from whatever type of mental health issue they're having. So that's what we really want to focus on today is what can parents do to help their children recover. And so Mary, Dr. Miller talked a bit about this kind of misconception that parenting can play a role in the development of mental health challenges or can cause mental health challenges. Did you experience any of that as a a mother of three? Parenting can be the most rewarding thing, but also the most nerve wracking because you love these kids, but you're not an expert. And when they don't do well, you do take the blame. Like you think, what is it that I could I have done something different? Could I, you know, I remember when um, my my daughter was uh, wound up in children's hospital here in the eating disorder unit. And I didn't want to tell anybody because I felt that they would be looking at me that, you know, how can you not have her be eating? Like, what is what is wrong with that? Yeah, I think like Mary was saying, it's it is a very common way to feel these days. I think there's a lot of pressure on parents, this idea that there's just one right way to do things. And if you're not doing it that way, it must be wrong. When parents fear judgment that, you know, if your child has a medical illness, chances are you're not worrying that you caused it, although sometimes parents do. And when it's a mental health challenge, especially because it's often invisible to other people, and people can be quite judgmental and critical. So parents will tend to feel blamed by others and may blame themselves too, um, because it's hard to know the cause. And the truth is that the cause of mental health problems is complicated. There's many factors. But when we don't know something, the mind tends to look for one simple cause. And of course, the closest thing is the easiest thing, which is, oh, well, it must be mom or must be dad, must be grandma. And I think, unfortunately, in mental health, there was a bit of a history of sometimes looking and blaming parents in the past, you know, the distant past. So I think there's a lot of reasons why that kind of thought is out there. And I think we're really hoping to both dispel those myths, but also look at the tremendous resource that parents are in helping their children. And what are some things that parents can do to not feel that self-blame or that guilt? Are there any kind of strategies or things they might tell themselves or do? Absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a hard journey. And as a mom as well, I'm, I'm not going to say, oh, this is easy. Just repeat this mantra mm-hmm. or do this mm-hmm. thing and it'll be gone. Um, I think first knowing that it's never too late to do something differently. So if there is something that you maybe regret, and we all have them, nobody is perfect, thank goodness, because kids, you know, would think that was weird if we were always acting in this perfect zen-like way all the time. But if there are things, you know, more genuine things that we feel badly about as parents, I think A, recognizing that we're doing the best we can and that no kid comes with an instruction manual. We can't know ahead of time. Giving ourselves a bit of a break about some of the things that haven't gone well and knowing that we can always do something differently, make it up to our child or to ourselves. And there are some specific practices. I mean, mindfulness practice really does help with developing non-judgmental awareness. And there's within mindfulness, self-compassion practice. And Dr. Kristen Neff is a psychologist who pioneered really the field of self-compassion. She has a website that's excellent. And she is a mother of a child with autism. And it's no coincidence, I don't think, that that's why she's the one who went on to develop this field. So, and then of course, just talking to others, because I think a lot of that 
parent self-blame is, is shame and feeling we're not good enough. And when you talk to others, other parents, people like Mary or other parents and residents through the Kelty or, or Family Smart, to know you're not alone, to say, you know, I did this to my kid and have someone say, well, you know, so did I and so did everyone else I know. And I that's not the reason they have depression or OCD or ADHD or whatever. I think that's really helpful too to talk to others. And, you know, you learn. And as you are finding out about different areas where your child might be struggling, there's things that you can do as a parent and you really think you're doing, at the time, you think you're doing the best thing. And I'll give it an example. My daughter had anxiety and uh, had trouble getting to school on her own. Well, you know, we think, okay, um, you know, it's easy my husband could drop her off on his way to work and it was easy for me on the way home from my work to pick her up. So she never had to go get over that fear of getting on the bus and finding her way there. Our intention was right, but in actual fact, we wound up enabling the anxiety and making it stay there. And you, you know, as I sit here as a, a parent in residence, parent peer support, I'm thinking, I'm not perfect. I made those mistakes. I I get it. You're trying your the best you can, but in actual fact, you're making it worse. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and just to add to that, I think everything parents do is really out of positive intention, right? We want to protect our children from harm. We want them to be successful and do well in the world. We want to keep them close and keep the relationship healthy. And probably 99% of the time, if there's something we're doing and it's not going well, it's not because of the wrong intention. It's because this mental health problem has sort of taken the rug out from under our feet. And what would have been totally effective as a parenting strategy for another child, for our child at another time or without the mental health problem, just doesn't work anymore. So that's really, I think, what this conversation is about, is how do you find some new balance when your child is struggling and sort of have the courage to try new things without falling into the trap of saying, oh, well, if only I had done this sooner, or this must all be my fault, because then you get paralyzed. Mm -hmm. And actually, your child needs you to kind of get out of that state of self-blame and paralysis and try some new things. Mary, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your family's mental health journey. And over the course of your years as a parent, many years as a parent, what kind of changed in your parenting style or helped you kind of have the courage to try new things that you kind of learned over over the years? With, um, as I mentioned, my my daughter had anxiety, wound up with a full-blown eating disorder and um, had to be hospitalized. And this totally surprised us. We had no idea. Um, We knew suddenly she wasn't eating, but what was the cause? We didn't even, I didn't even recognize the word anxiety was behind it. Just as Dr. Miller said that when somebody, your child is struggling, you're trying to do the best as a parent, you're trying to support or or control and, and help. When she got into hospital and what was a turning point for her recovery is when I backed off. I had to give her the space in order for her to go through her journey in order to figure out what was at the backbone of these behaviors. And it's so hard as a parent when your kid's struggling and you can't do it for them. You can't 
fix it for them. It was a big aha moment when I realized that this was this was her journey. It, it, it she had to do it. So that was sort of a start. And then when, you know, she was a, a young adult at that, a teen at that point, when there is um, irrational thoughts or concerns or worries that your child is exhibiting, if you can validate their f- feelings, you may not agree with what they're saying, but if you validate their feelings, then it it opens communication and you can move forward. And I, I would say just the idea that you are walking beside them and that no matter what, you're there for them. Dr. Miller, do you have any thoughts on that? I know that you do a lot of family therapy with the families that you work with here at BC Children's Hospital. Can you speak to validating feelings or some other kind of key parenting strategies that are a part of family therapy that you found have been really beneficial to the families that you work with? Yeah, I think actually Mary touched on all the important points. So every family is different in terms of how close and how or how distant they are, how involved parents are, or how not involved they are. And so the same advice can't apply to every family. That's the first thing is really to take stock of where you're at. So if it feels like everybody in the family is doing stuff together all the time and can almost complete each other's sentences and family dinners are together and we're always going out and doing things together. And when a child has a problem, mom or dad or other caregivers jumping in to fix it all the time, then it it may actually be how do we keep connection but also have our own space might be something that's really important to look at. If it's a family where actually, you know, everybody's working late or nobody is ever together, children have to sort of take care of themselves quite a bit. That family may need to look at spending more time together, connecting together, parent and child time, even with a teenager, even if it's just watching a show together, giving them a lift somewhere. So connection is really important, but connection with personal, I guess, freedom as well. That's one, I guess, beginning stage. And it's hard to do anything else without connection. So that's really the first step is how are we doing? Are we able to just spend some time together, ideally without screens in front of us? It doesn't have to be tons, right? Even a few minutes a day, but of solid connecting time. Driving kids places, it's magic. Yeah. Well, that came up in our first podcast too when we were talking about resilience and connection being key to fostering resilience as well. That's what the parents said. Like, that's a great place to have these dot conversations in the car because you're both in there together on a long car ride. Yeah. It's, it's a great opportunity. Or going yeah. for a walk or shooting hoops or mm-hmm. just where it's less intense, right? Yes. That's what the kids yeah. prefer. And it's great for adults too. And then you're looking at, like Mary was saying, this idea of validating feelings. And and some parents are doing lots of this, you know. So again, if you're in the type of family where everyone's always acknowledging each other's feelings, that's continue by all means. It may not be the answer for you. There may be need to be more sort of setting boundaries and limits. Whereas if you're in a family where emotions aren't talked about, where we don't connect in that way, uh, then that might be really the money in, in looking at that more. And we can talk about this more in detail, but the, the piece of actually supporting your child practically to do things like Mary was saying before with her daughter, that the well-intentioned idea of driving her all the time turned out in retrospect 
not to be as helpful for lots of kids, especially those with anxiety, depression, OCD. Part of what's really going to help them is the parent being kind of tough and, and, and with love and with kindness, still being firm and making sure they're going through the steps of daily life they need to do. So it is everything, <laughs> but it's a sort of a tailored everything. And I think that's where talking to a clinician, if your child does have mental health issues about what, you know, what for our particular family makes sense, it is really useful. When um, my daughter was in, in children's hospital, they said, well, you're going to have family therapy. And my immediate reaction was, oh, no, they're blaming us. <laughs> like, you know, this is going to be mm-hmm. a room and they're going to tell me about all the things that I have done that have, has caused this. That was my initial reaction. But my husband and I looked at each other and we said, this isn't about us. This is about our daughter. And if this is going to help her, we will do it. And it was the best thing because we used to call it like a safe space in that my daughter is not one to really be able to, like a lot of kids, articulate their feelings or what was going on. But in that safe space, if we were doing something that was not helpful for her, she could say it. And we could also vice versa say, this is a concern. And it was, if you had tried to have that conversation, I believe, at that point with her, she would have just been very emotional and it would not have gone well. But it was like the safe space. And so I'm a big fan of family therapy, I tell you. And it just, um, because... To have another set of eyes or even um, the the social workers who we, we had could read body language of my daughter or be able to draw things out that we didn't know. And I know as a family therapist, what I see a lot of my job as is really just translating and taking what people do or say and showing the other family members how it's really out of love and out of a desire to do their best and the best by the other people in the family, because things get lost, you know, things get lost. And when a parent might say, well, you need to do your homework. Have you talked to your teacher? You know, they're trying to help their child, trying to connect. And there's nothing wrong with that. And yet to the the teen, they may hear that as a criticism and they may hear that as a distancing move as like, mom doesn't like me, mom doesn't think I'm good enough. When really mom is saying, I care about you so much that I need to say this to you because I want to help you because I, I really do love you and want the best for you. And it's really the the bond between, you know, parent and child or between the siblings or the parent. That's what carries it through. There's no magic that the therapist does. And it's relationships within the whole family. So it, um, when somebody, when a child is struggling, siblings understand that you have a struggling child, so they're going to get more of mom and dad's attention. But they have their emotional need, and it's hard to not have sort of that resentment or how, and if you can bring that out or strategies, it helps. I think that's a really good point in that, and we do actually get quite a few calls from parents at the Kelty Center who really struggle with that, like so much of their attention is on one of their children who might be struggling a bit more, and then they have this additional guilt about not spending time with the siblings or thinking about their other children's needs. I wonder, Dr. Miller, if you have any kind of advice or strategies for parents who really struggle with that. 
Yeah. Well, it's like anything else in life that there's always challenges and things aren't always fair. And the greatest gift a parent can give their child in that situation is an acknowledgement of the reality of the sibling's feelings. I think often, again, because if a parent is feeling really guilty and so they don't want to talk about it because they don't want to make it worse, again, out of a, a desire to protect. But really, the kid who's not getting the attention knows they're not. And so to have a conversation about it and and to you know, express that you understand why they'd feel that way, because it is true that you're going to doctor's appointments more often with the other kid. And it is true that you're not necessarily able to be at their school events. And yet they are just as important to you. And if there is any possibility of spending actual physical time with the other sibling, that's great, you know, but if there's not, then who else in their life can come on board so that parent doesn't feel so alone, you know, so I think when you acknowledge it, you can find creative solutions and you got to help the kid who's struggling. Right. That's yes. just reality. I want to go back a little bit to the validating feelings piece, emotional support, because I think that's something that that language is a bit maybe unfamiliar to some parents. And I think it can also be a little bit tricky for parents who struggle with their child having feelings or thoughts or ideas that they don't they just don't agree with. Right. They're like, I don't I don't think that's true. I don't think that's right. But, but they understand the importance of validating those feelings. So I'm wondering if either of you wanted to kind of talk a little bit more about what that actually looks like, perhaps with a few examples. So well, just a kind of regular everyday example yeah. would be if your child comes home and says, uh, I hate math. And, you know, it's, they've gotten one lower mark or something, but generally they like math. Generally, they get good marks. Of course, your first reaction is to say, no, you don't. You you like math, you're good at math, right? That every parent in the world is like gonna say that. And that doesn't matter, right? In everyday life, not a big deal. If you were to validate the feeling instead, you might say something like, man, you like are so upset today because you got this low mark and you just hate math right now. And you would just express what your child is saying. You'd put yourself in their shoes and just like be on their team and say what they're kind of saying. And then probably they'd say, well, no, I just had a bad day. You know, I actually like math, right? Because that's the beauty of when you jump on someone's side and you're on their team is then they don't have to fight you. And they just actually become more logical. It helps their brain settle. So that's an everyday example. But when your child is really struggling with a mental health problem and their emotions are all, are all over the place, that's where validation can get you out of some really tricky spots. Now, you're not validating their feelings to make them calm down, right? Because as soon as you're doing it from that lens, you're tense, you're like, it's not working. It's more about, it's really just about being with them, which is a, a concept. It's, it's being, it's really about being compassionate, just being with not expecting to, them to change, accepting. But the way that that would look is so if instead of saying, you know, I hate math, your child who has an eating disorder, maybe who has anorexia, says, oh, I'm so fat. Now, this is a hard one, right? Because no parent on earth wants to say to their daughter who weighs 70 pounds and says she's fat, yeah, you're, yeah, I, I see why you feel that way. It like must feel awful. That's a hard thing to say. I'm not saying people at home should, you know, try that today. That, that would take some, some practice. But the problem is when you feel fat and you're anorexic, you know, you feel so alone because nobody else really gets that. Or when you feel like, you know, depressed and that you just can't face the day, what's worse than feeling 
depressed and hopeless is is feeling alone in that, that nobody can understand. When you have to wash your hands 50 times because you're worried about having germs, what's worse than that is feeling like nobody could possibly understand. So the first thing in validating feelings is, is developing some understanding of what's actually going on for the child, really trying to put yourself in their shoes and then putting it into words. So the child with OCD, who's really struggling, who's feeling like they have germs on their hands and says, I, you know, I can't eat right now. I can't eat right now. I have to wash my hands again. A validation might be like, of course, you don't feel like you can eat because you feel like your hands are contaminated and this is going to be really dangerous. So that's the validating part. And then you would want to also add after that, you can add some reality, some reassurance. And I know that's the OCD talking right now. It's really bossing you around. It's so hard to fight this. And let's figure out how to do this together. It doesn't have to be validating a feeling. You can validate their experience, your relate like based on your relationship with them. If they're you can say like, well, yeah, for sure. I, I get why you don't want to talk to me because we've been fighting every time this comes up. So I don't blame you for slamming the door and going to your room. I've really been annoying you today. Like that's a validation. It doesn't have to be you're angry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a lot of words. It's really your presence of just wanting to understand your child and seeing them as as fundamentally good. As, a good, as doing the best they can under difficult circumstances. Right. No, that's good. Yeah. That's yeah. Good and Mary, do you have any examples that come to mind for you as you're listening to Dr. Miller talk about that piece? Well, the example I'm thinking with, with my daughter, and I took uh, a workshop, and I know um, Dr. Miller is quite an expert in this with emotion family focused therapy. I took a workshop on it. And one of it is to apologize. And again, when they talk about a parent apologizing, is that you're taking the blame, (laughs) you know, the vicious circle, but it's not, it's a way of opening up a path for conversation. So we, during the workshop, we had uh, written a letter to our child. And I remember having a conversation with her. I sort of read my note and put it away and then went went to her and I said, I'm really sorry that you are feeling whatever that she was, whatever she was experiencing at the time. And instead of getting my head bitten off, which I was sort of expecting, it opened it up. And she actually said, well, yeah, and then talked. And I thought, this is magic, like, but it's, it's hard work to get the language or be at a point, at least I've, I found it, it's not second nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think on, on the topic of sort of apologizing, it's again, not saying, oh, you know, I'm a bad person. I'm a bad parent. I did something wrong. That's, that is totally not the spirit of it. It's that kids with mental health problems often blame themselves. And in fact, if they're angry at you and accusing you of all kinds of things, chances are the more they're blaming themselves and they just don't know how to deal with that, right? So a kid who, and and when you have a mental health problem as a kid, like you know your family is struggling to get you to appointments, that your sibling's getting less attention, that they see their parents stressed or fighting and they blame themselves. So the idea of this is where you can help share some of the responsibility Uh, So for example, I saw a kid a little while back 
who was having a lot of anger problems, not going to school. And we just talked about how, in fact, in the family, everybody had been kind of stressed. And when the more the child was aggressive, the more the adults in the home got reactive, like understandably, and might yell back. And then, you know, it just was a vicious cycle. But when the parents were able to start using some of the validation and to say, actually, you know what, you're a kid, and we know that we lost our cool. And we wish we had found a way to recognize that you were struggling and not get in that pit of fighting with you. And you know what, the fact that we were yelling at each other, it's not just your fault, like it's all of us. That freed this kid up. And he was like a different person the next time I saw him. He was cooperative. He was in a better mood. If the whole family or at least a parent can help take some of that responsibility um, and, and reassure a kid, you know, you're you're not, if this is not about you, this is about all of us figuring this out together. Well, that really like unburdens the child and helps a lot. I think you guys have touched on some really key practical strategies that parents can can try just in terms of how they talk to their children or how they kind of view their children in addition to kind of this 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 kind of foundational connection um, validating feelings uh, the emotional support kind of those practical strategies around setting limits is there anything else that we haven't touched on what are some kind of key other pieces that you might suggest an approach that I really like is the collaborative problem solving is is to have the child or the youth um, have a say in solving the problem, be it the, the behavior or whatever. And so then they have ownership in it. And, you know, I, I think that's important is that you're working together. So that approach, that's Ross Green. And his website is, I think, Lives in the Balance. That's an excellent resource. Uh, there's Mental Health Foundations, .ca, which the creators of the emotion-focused family therapy that Mary was describing before. And in BC, there's Confident Parents Thriving Kids, which is available through a GP referral. And it's a free, often telephone-based service for behavior or anxiety. And then really, I think, just connecting with either the natural supports in your community, whether it's sometimes it's a preschool teacher who can be a huge help on parenting strategies. Sometimes it's um, a school counselor or family doctor, and sometimes it's your own friends or family and, and maybe a family therapist, you know, once it's a teenager and there's a more serious mental health issue. Then I, I think, I mean, I'm obviously biased, but I do think a family-based approach to helping children and youth with mental health disorders is extremely um, useful because these issues do touch the whole family. Yeah. I'm wondering if either of you have any final thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners. I'm just thinking about, you know, not everybody is super verbal and wanting to yeah. get deep into feelings all the time. It doesn't always need to be so much talking. I think if you're a parent who doesn't really, this all this stuff is a little too much. It's really just those small things like connecting with your child, watching a sports game together, um, just saying, hey, looks like things are tough. Like it doesn't have to be a lot of words. It's really your presence of just wanting to understand your child and seeing them as as fundamentally good 
as a good as doing the best they can under difficult circumstances. It's that presence and that way of looking at your child. That's what really matters, not the exact words. I think that's great. Mary? No, she said it all. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your time and your expertise with our listeners. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks. That was a really great episode. I totally agree. It's one that stuck out for me ever since we released that way back in season one. I'm so glad that we chose this one as our rerun and shared it again with everyone. A big thanks to all of our listeners. This episode of Where You Are is brought to you by BC Children's Kelty Mental Health Resource Centre. Our show is produced and edited by Emily Morantz with audio engineering by Sam Seguin. Audio production by Jar Audio. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might be listening now. Are you looking for more great episodes of Where You Are? Find us wherever you listen to podcasts and of course at keltymentalhealth.ca slash podcast. We hope you'll make us a go-to resource to promote your family's mental health and wellness from where you are to where you want to be.